Hello, welcome to the LEI Podcast. I'm executive producer Josh Raposa. We're going to jump right into it today. We have John Shook in the studio speaking with Dr. Kiame Mahania, the CEO of Lynn Community Health Center. John, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask the first question. Uh, Dr. Mahania, you were born uh, in the Congo. You were, were raised in Switzerland and you studied medicine here in the States. And, uh, you know, this is where you're practicing and uh, now the CEO of Lynn Community Health Center. You've had such an, a, a remarkable life, and I hope we'll go into that today, um, you know, experiencing different cultures and challenges and um, really how it's made you a leader um, that builds consensus as opposed to, you know, one that rules with an iron fist or, you know, but rules by yelling at people. So being uh, a person who's lived everywhere, what do you consider home? What is home for me? You yes. know, like what? Yes. And I was thinking, well, if you think of when I was the happiest and the most comfortable and the most accepted, yes. those would be my years in Geneva. In Geneva. Yes. Well, that's a pretty good place to claim, is sir. Yes. Yeah. Although it's not home now when I go, right? Not it's anymore. just no longer. But that moment in time mm-hmm. of who I was, that definitely was home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I loved I loved my time in Geneva. So it was a public school, but Geneva is just, I don't know, Switzerland, they have a good system going. In that, terms of uh, education, in ter- in and of what the, about health in, in terms of the balance between capitalism and collectivism, hmm. like the, Geneva had a, like it's clearly a capitalist system. Right, right, right. right. This is Switzerland, the, the, the Swiss, Swiss banks Swiss, and all right? that, right? But the public amenities were just hmm. amazing. The schools hmm. were amazing. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, my um, my sixth grade school trip was one valley off Zermatt okay. to go skiing, you know? This is like world-class <laughs> skiing. And for people like me who didn't have their own skis, the school actually had, you could go rent your skis from the school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my eighth grade school trip was a two-week trip in Provence in the south of France. So did and music lessons were free. I was part of an orchestra. And I suspect that they were pretty nice music lessons. Very as well. nice music lessons. World, very world nice class, orchestra. Yes. Uh, each neighborhood had a community center that had a turf soccer field and all kinds of things. So I played in a soccer club my whole time I was there with coaches and equipment and nice locker rooms and you know they just did they did that part. That collectivist part, mm-hmm. they, I thought they did, thought they did well. Balance is so important to so many things. Yeah, and I don't know why some people can manage to figure it out a little bit better than others. You know. Right, right. Yeah, the uh, circumstances, I guess, have a lot to do with it. A lot of it, and also, do you feel you're all us, or do you feel mm-hmm. there's a them and there's a us, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was lucky because Geneva. Very international. Mm-hmm. So I was not unusual. And the Swiss are, at the time, they were xenophobic enough that they took all the kids that had something that wasn't Swiss. Yes. And they stuck them in one class. Oh, really? So, that my, is so for my 7th, 8th, and ninth grade class, <clears throat> I had this riot of incredibly diverse friends. You know, my... You know, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons, right? So my uh, Dungeon Master yes. was a half Finnish, half Czech, whose parents had lived in Israel, and then I moved to Geneva. 
you know, my, my other partner. And who better to be a dungeon master? Exactly. Than and my chef. other partner was half Swedish, half Italian. I mean, it was just it, it was just went on and on yeah. that way. My whole my whole class I had a really great great time. Everybody spoke two or three languages. So our birthday parties, we had this group of friends, and it was agreed that our, what we would do for our birthday parties is that our parents would host the most stereotypical meal of that particular culture. Nice. Right? And this, so uh, my mother was American. She would do the hamburger and french fries. That is and, and the stereotypical was, and, meal. And, and this was before McDonald's was, there was a McDonald's okay. in Switzerland, right? The McDonald's in Switzerland came when I was 15. Okay. The first McDonald's. Oh, really? That was the first one? The first so not one. that long ago. Yeah, so, I re- so we were so excited yeah. when the first yeah, McDonald's yeah, came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that was, that's what took me to Switzerland. Loved it. Had a great time there. My daughter is actually going to be an au pair for my best friend there for really? a few weeks this summer. So it continues. Continues, yes. Continues. So you become used to a diverse setting like that. Uh, yes. And when you're living in that milieu... Uh, then when you're not in that, I, that you know, it's, that's, it's a different world. It's a different world, yeah. And whether you're coming from something different into that, that's a shock. And if you're going from that to a different world, that can be a shock as well. Yeah, so my father got a little bit worried that I liked it too much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the rule in Geneva... That's not most... A lot of the world is not like <laughs> that. So the rule in Switzerland is to become Swiss, you have to either live there for 10 years and then apply for citizenship, or if you've lived there for five years and then turn 18, oh. you automatically qualify for citizenship. And so you were close. So I've been, I've been there for six years. Yes. And I was 17. And so my father said, it's time to go back home. Really? Yes. And so... Hey, you were getting too comfortable. Yes. And I got my one of my other very good friends. His parents felt so bad for me. <clears throat> they came to my parents and they said, you know, he's one year away from university. Why don't you guys go back to the Congo? He can stay with us. He can live with us. He'll have a room. He'll do whatever. And in a year, when he's ready for university, he can move out and do his thing. Sure. Right. And uh, to at a time at a time, I thought I would never forgive my father, but he said no. I would say that would be a, tra- a traumatic to, no at that time. It, it was traumatic, but. Um, I've always been very pragmatic. It's like, what, what are you going to do? You have to, you have, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you have uh, to move what, on. What are you going to do? you got to move on and go back to the Congo. And you could be appreciative of the fact that you had had six-plus years right. and, and with an ama- just an amazing experience. And you can hold your breath for two years. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> That's how I thought of it. But it turns out that I had a great time when I was in Congo for those two years. Those were also very formative years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah. I would have been a completely different person if I'd stayed in Switzerland. It's amazing to reflect back uh, how different experiences make us who we are. And, and mm-hmm. if, if certain things, had certain points in time uh, had not occurred, you'd be a different person completely today. Different, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be an English speaker, number one, because if I'd been in Switzerland and I'd been Swiss, there would have been no reason for me to come to the U.S. for college. So right. I would have... Right, right. I'd be living somewhere in Geneva right now. Married to a half Swiss, half something else person. So this person, that's right, <laughs> as everyone was. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so you, um, sorry, sorry for hemming and hawing just a bit. This is where the editing comes in. So that was all. That was all starting, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Oh yeah. In fact, I had um, thought to ask to go back a little bit in your 
history. And that's actually a nice way to start the way we just the way we just did. Yes. So after several years of a extremely diverse experience in Switzerland, um, and before you were in Switzerland, you had had a less diverse experience right. that led you there. Mm-hmm. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. So my childhood was in the Congo. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, s- somewhat complicated, but um, so my father um, wanted to come to the U.S. in the late 50s, early 60s. And it was at that point, it was in the Cold War, yes. and the U.S. had this big push to try to educate as many of the third world future leaders as possible to counter communism, right? Yes, it was yes. part of the big count. So they had these big programs to bring promising young Africans to the U.S. for a year or two and, and indoctrinate them in the virtues of democracy and then send them back. Yes. And so my dad wanted to come here, but he didn't speak English. Okay. So Ma- the language Major again. impediment. So he thought, well, I'm sure that to white people, especially Americans, we all look alike. Mm-hmm. So he just sent his cousin to take the test for him. Oh, my goodness. With his ID. Oh. And cousin got a good score. So my dad got a scholarship, came to the U.S., showed up at university, day one, couldn't speak English. So, so uh, he was the call the car, and now, so they, now what do I do? So they sent him to high school for mm-hmm. a year. So he learned English uh, over a year. Okay. And then applied to college, went to Kalamazoo College. Kalamazoo uh, College. In Michigan for, sure. for four years. Met my mother. But this is the early 60s, right? <clears throat> so interracial marriage, not so hot, not so great. My mom elopes during her junior year, supposedly go to Kalamazoo Kenya. College. It's a very, it's a very nice small college yes. in, the, in the Midwest. In the Midwest. She elopes right. with a, an she elopes, African man. gets married, comes back. Parents are upset. School is upset. So she has the, to leave. The town is upset. Everybody's upset. So she has to leave school. Uh, and my father had graduated, so we went back to the Congo. Back to the Congo in the uh, early 60s. And so that, was, that was about 68. 68, late 60s. Oh, and then okay. my father realized he needed to finish his Ph.D. thesis. So he did his research from 68 to 70 in the Congo and okay. then came to defend his thesis or whatever it is that they do. Uh, in the PhD world, yes. and um, and I was born in 70, 1970 in Philadelphia during that time, and then we went back to the Congo in seventy two, and my father uh, has always been a pacifist, mm-hmm. and so he refused to do military service, and so in exchange you could either do one year of military service or two years of civil service. Okay. So he was assigned to be the principal of a uh, element of a secondary school from so from. 7th grade to 12th grade, and the boonies out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. No electricity, no water, no wow. hospital, no roads, and that's where my mom was. And she was a complete suburban... The long way from Kalamazoo. So suburban girl who my grandma says they even know how to sew. <laughs> <laughs> you know? She was of no value whatsoever. No she value whatsoever. Uh, and so it, that's why my, my early childhood was in a very rural part of the Congo, and then my father finished the civil service, uh, got offered to be a professor in the capital, so we moved to the capital. Okay. And so I lived in the capital, so my first memories are from being in the capital. Okay. And we lived on a, I don't know if there's equivalent here in the U.S., but essentially it was all professors okay. that lived on this campus. Professor housing of some but sort. They were, but they were professors from all kinds of different schools and 
right? It was just the professors all congregated to live in one area, right? Yes. But it was not quite a gated community, but there were mm-hmm. limits, and mm-hmm. everybody within those limits was a professor. Okay, uh, my father was a professor of religion, um, history of religion. That's his interest, uh, and so I grew up there. And as typical kid, not particularly thoughtful, had a great time, had a great childhood, was very rambunctious, very... My mother was convinced I was going to grow up and be a criminal. Yes. Like I was, you know, very violent. As you say, you know, know, a few few changes and you could be a different person. Yes, and then, um, you know, loved, loved being in the Congo. We'd go every summer, we'd go back to my father's hometown day and a half trip across uh, the river, the Congo River. Uh, always a huge adventure from my perspective. Uh, loved it because it was such a different world, you know. That a physically beautiful place. Physically, in a, in a southern Texas kind of way. Yes. Very austere. Uh, very austere. And we, only, we can only travel during the dry season, right? So we have a wet season and a dry season because right. it's immediately sub-equatorial. Right, right. Um, and so it was generally brown when we traveled okay. in the summer. So very austere beauty. But it was just the, the different pace of life. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my grandmother was still alive at that point. She was a very traditional woman who went to the fields every day. And, and, wondered, you know, and wondered why your mother didn't even know how to sew. Yeah, you know? no, no, we had, and we had, we'd have these amazing clan meetings, you know, where you get 50, 100, 300 mm. of the leading males of the clan who would get mm. together to talk about what the problems were. <clears throat> and every so often, and it's a very, very Christian, deeply Christian okay. community. Uh, and every four or five years, there was something that was called Nsikumusu, which is in Kikongo, which means the Great Awakening. Sort of like the awakening movement in the 18th, 19th century, Christian movements yes, in America. Yes, yes. And so for 72 hours, there's a continuous service. Okay. In this one Very partic- intense. And in this one particular area. And so I had all kinds of experiences like that. You know, mm-hmm. we would wake up, go to Nsikumusu, come mm-hmm. back to eat, go back to Nsikumusu. You know, like it was just, and everybody would go, right? Everybody went, and you danced, and you chanted hymns, and you listened to preaching, and goodness, in the local language, in the local language, yes. Um, And I mean, so as a kid, it was a magical childhood. My parents had enough money that I could eat every day Uh, because my mother was American. There was all kinds of small Mm -hmm. luxuries that made life incredible from our neighbors' perspective. You know, for instance. We always had new soccer balls, mm-hmm. right? So that made me the star no of, of the neighborhood to have a new soccer ball every year. You know, that was uh, astounding. Uh, and then every four or five years, we'd come spend a summer in the U.S. So I spent, I think I spent three summers throughout my childhood and teenage years in the U.S. with my grandparents. So I had, a, had an idea Mm-hmm. Of a different life, of a different over there world, the a different ocean. life where food was plentiful mm-hmm. and everybody seemed to have a car and a TV and there a new house. soccer balls everywhere. All over the yes, yes, place. and you know I would go to Six Flags and right. you know it was just a completely different world, but I was aware of it. It never felt real, mm-hmm. like it always felt like a, could it? it felt like a really long movie. Mm-hmm. 
right? That, that you're, feeling you're, you're that you have. You're somehow in this movie. You're in the movie, and, but you never really think, oh, this is my life, mm -hmm. right? You mm -hmm. just sort of think, this is great, this is mm -hmm. nice. And then you go back after two or three months. Um, so, uh, so even though it was not as diverse as Geneva was, it had, it o it's had its own particular cultural richness. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. because it's a post-colonial society, there was mm -hmm. that t constant tension between yes. the traditional world and then the colonial world. And even though it was a post-colonial world, it was still colonial values, mm -hmm. right? Everything European mm -hmm. was positive. Everything Congolese was not to be was, valued. Was not, was not, yes. And even with sort of the Black is Beautiful movement that came out of the U.S. in the 60s, yes. uh, so that sort of started changing things. Still, like in my father's generation, the worst insult they could hurl each other was to call each other indigène, which means indigenous in French. Mm -hmm. Right? So that sort of tells you what perceptions, what were. perceptions yeah. were. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and my father really struggled with that. Mm. With wanting to be proud of being Congolese. And he did a lot of work exploring traditions and uh, writing about traditions, writing about his father's life and recording all the old chants and rituals that okay. were dying out, right? He, yes. Right? Yet at the same time, his kids had such a westernized upbringing. So for yes. instance, we were never allowed to go spend the night at his sister's houses, which normally would be something, you know, the cousins, well, all, all, all the cousins together get together and at right? the aunt's house, and yeah, stay overnight, and stay overnight, suffer for several nights, and so we never did that. Uh, he, did, so he didn't want you to get that steeped into. Yeah, I never. You know, my father. Um, you now, one of the things I like the most about American culture is you get to ask questions. Yes. And people generally think that when they're asked a question, they have to answer. Yes. Right. That wasn't uh, in Congolese culture, uh, particularly when there's a difference in status. Mm -hmm. um, you can ask all you want. Mm -hmm. you know, you're, not, you're not guaranteed an answer. <laughs> and so I've never really gotten a clear answer from but him. Why? Or you why were, you didn't or how? To stay overnight or, at the man's house. Yes. You know, he, he just thought what he thought. He did what he thought was best. And um, yeah, and then my and then my mother. You know, my mother really struggled living as an American woman uh, in the Congo. Most of the friendship patterns, women were friends with their sisters and aunts and nieces and cousins, and right? You, your circle of friendship were your female relatives. That's, that's your circle of support. That's, that's who you talk to. That's who you go to for advice. That's who helps you. And so for my mom, it was tough. It was hard for her to really get integrated into local yes. society. Yes. Uh, so that, that part was hard for her. And particularly because uh, my part of the country is matrilineal. Okay. So oh. inheritance goes through yes. women. And, um, and so, typically you so typically the person would be most important in, in my father's life would be his sister's children. Because it's matrilineal. It's, matrilineal. A, it's a diagonal. Sure. Like the Western is... Patrilineal, so it goes in a straight line, father, son, father, son. Yes, yes. Whereas if you did that tree in a Congo, it would be diagonal. You'd always be looking at your sister's children. Your sister's right? children, yes. Um, and so, but because, she was kind because of my mom was that. American, mm -hmm. she didn't have a brother mm -hmm. who could watch over us. Mm -hmm. And so um, my father named me the firstborn 
kiame, kiami, which means he who belongs to me. As so a message saying, kiame means he, be- he who belongs to me. me. Yes. Uh, and so that means that anytime one of my relatives called me, they're yeah. actually saying, you belong to me. Belong to me. And so I, by default, I'm an honorary member of my father's, of my father's clan. Okay. Okay. So. So then, when you left to go to uh, Switzerland, yes, that was that was a big. Uh, it was very uh, exciting. happening as well. Very exciting. My 11 year old mind, there were two things I wanted. I wanted to see snow, and I wanted a ham sandwich. So you went to a pretty good place for uh, <laughs> ham and for uh, yes, for snow. But I hated snow. butter. You so, hated butter. Yes, and so my parents warned me. It's not like an Asterix comic book where you're going to get this like great big piece of pork. You know, it's it's going to be like. But I didn't listen to them, and I wanted that ham sandwich. And the, sure. I, so I remember my first ham sandwich, and it came slathered in mustard and butter and pickles, and I was like, "What is this?" You wanted, <laughs> you you wanted the ham. You I, wanted I wanted the pork. The, I wanted the pork. You know, you turns out I wanted a whole roasted pork, a la Cuban style. You yes. know, but. Took me another two decades to discover that. To, to discover that, yeah. So Switzerland was 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 a shock, but it was, you know, we we got to see our father a lot more than we were used to, so that was nice. Uh, and then I had a degree of freedom that I just didn't have living in the capital, in Kinshasa, because I could just go on the bus, go on the train, go the subway, go anywhere I wanted. It's very safe. Everything was organized. Right, so you, I could. I joined the scouts. I joined soccer. Started playing music. You know, I had friends everywhere. Um, so life just exploded. Life eleven. Ex- you go to Switzerland, and and um, the diversity and just the opportunity that's all over. And then all of a sudden, you're almost eighteen, uh, yes. and Dad says, "No, you can't stay." Right. And so then you went back to went back Kinshasa. went back to Kinshasa. Um, went to the Belgian school. Okay. So, it, because the, the Congo used to be the Belgian Congo. Yes. So, there is a lot of Belgians, so there's a Belgian school. And for Belgians, it was a free public school. For, for non-Belgians, it was a private school. So, you paid. So, we paid. But my degree, if you looked at my high school degree, it looks like I went to high school in Belgium. Because yes. I have a degree from a public school in Belgium. Um, and so, you know, I don't know what the percentages were. In my mind, it was half Belgian and half not Belgian. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, a diverse, a diverse but community. Very diverse. In, 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 in like school. I, I clearly remember there were some Americans. Like I, I connected with them. I remember that there, was, there were no French because it was a French school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there were no Greeks because it was a Greek school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, about a third of the school was Flemish Belgian, right? Um, but we were on the French side. Uh, and so all my friends wanted were going to Belgium for school, so I got accepted to medical school in Belgium when so I was So you 19. have a Belgian high school degree, so yeah. what am I going to do? And go, where I, I, I'm going to go to Belgium. Go to Belgium for, for a university. And uh, my parents were like, well, you, you should just apply to the U.S., see what happens. I had no desire to go to the U.S. I didn't really speak English. Um, I've never really lived here other than spending summers with my grandparents. Mm-hmm. I, Your I, father had lived in the U.S. And they hadn't liked it. Right? It was very clear that he hadn't liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also knew that racially it would be complicated. Mm-hmm. And I had already experienced the difference between 
the Congo and Switzerland. I wasn't really that sure that I wanted to get acclimatized to a whole new racial dynamic. Um, but unfortunately, I got a full scholarship at two different places. And so, one of those nice problems to have, but and my parents, since they were complete idealists and social justice warriors in their own res- respect, they were running a non government organization at that point. They really didn't have the money to support me in Belgium, and so they were like, Whoa, scholarship! Scholarship, guess where you're going? Have to you're take going, advantage of it. You're going to Haverford College in Haverford, Pennsylvania. And that's where that's where I ended up. Loved college, mm-hmm. loved Haverford. Took about a year to learn English. Um, so all the, the 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 angst about going to the U.S. and hearing stories about Kalamazoo, you go to Haverford, and and and, uh, it, and everything works out. Um, uh, some of my fears were realized. Mm-hmm. Right, the racial thing it was, was clear that I had no idea how to navigate expectations of me as a black male um, in the U.S. You know, like I clearly had no idea how to navigate those. And so those took a while. But in terms of friendships and acceptance and belonging, um, those were not, there were were no issues. And you were still uh, growing up, developing, thinking, what shall I do with the rest of my life? Um... My father had always wanted me to be a physician. Yes, he wanted me to be a physician. Yes. So he got a PhD. He had a PhD. Religious yes. studies. Yes. He uh, calls, but calls, he, he said, "I want, I want uh, my son to do something a little different." I want different. my firstborn to be a physician. Mm-hmm. I want my secondborn to be an engineer. Goodness. And I want my thirdborn to be a businesswoman. He had a clear, uh, clear idea. path of what he wanted each one to do. And my sister has an MBA and works uh, for Converse in their marketing department and I'm a physician and you're a physician my yeah. brother also became a physician so he deviated from he the deviated path. from the plan deviated from the plan but in not such a bad way yes um, so I knew so I was pre-med okay from the beginning you know, from the beginning but I also wasn't that interested in it I had all kinds of other interests in life and so I majored in political economy Pre-med, but you can, but you you majored in pl- political economy. Political economy. My, yeah, my my particular well, that kind of fits with the you know. Yeah, my particular interest was uh, um, agrarian policies in post-communist countries. That was sort of that was at the time was my interest. Don't ask me why. Well, it <laughs> but, is but yeah, very interesting. Uh, so, had you chosen that, that would, yeah. that would have been another path. It would be, yeah, you'd be so, in a different place doing so a different thing. So I spent a lot of time now. reading about Vietnam. Like in, the, in, the, in its post sort of communist state, and you know what what do agrarian policies look like in countries like Hungary, and you know, so that that was my interest at the time. Um, yeah, so I got I got a very diverse, great education at Haverford. Uh, because of that, I suffered mightily in medical school because <laughs> I was seeing the material for the first time, whereas most of my colleagues were seeing it for the second or third time. You right? had some ground to make up. Ground to make up. But I don't regret it. You know, like I really, you know, I can understand the business section of the newspaper. You know, from the, the economic standpoint, I like that. Um, I met a lot of interesting professors. It's a small school, so you really can get to know your professors. Yes. 
Uh, and then it was, you know, in terms of forming me, it's a Quaker school. So all decisions are about consensus. And I think that's probably the, the biggest impact that the school had on me. I think my dad had already really pushed this idea of this French idea of noblesse oblige, which mm. is, um, you know, if you give if you have privilege, you have a responsibility yes. to yes. to care for others. So that was already well implanted. Um, but I think the Quaker side really got me thinking about consensus, and so you can see how the there's a pretty natural arc from that. You need to help others, consensus decision making, again by and respecting people, right? Like it's a it's a pretty it's pretty natural it's a pretty natural arc there. And so you can see why some parts of the lean thinking when I was exposed to it didn't have to overcome that much right, it sort of fit in and to some other preconceived notions that I had about how to treat people. So we're starting to see some ways that now it starts to become clear why Kiam is a natural lean thinker because uh, you were thinking this way uh, as something was uh, the, uh, the accumulated effect of many experiences throughout right. your life. It was fertile ground. I was fertile you ground fertile for ground. lean thinking. Yes. Um, so the idea of consensus making, and you know that the, the general argument against consensus making is the same is the same argument against lean that people make. Right? It takes too much time. Yes. It, it takes too much time to do things that way. But when you think that the Quakers were the first major religious mm. group to agree that slavery was bad, and they made that decision through consensus, right? Then you, and we forget how divisive slavery was yes. 200 years ago, yes. 300 years ago. Yes. You know? so, which means that just because you're making decisions by consensus doesn't mean that you're not going to make make a decision hard decisions that's right. right but it changed it changed the way I thought of leadership and the way I thought of how you interact with people so it was more than just asking people for their advice or their suggestions when you're a leader yes right it's about how do you actually make them part and I think the whole dynamic how do you actually is, involve everyone in the decision making yeah, process it doesn't it, mean you're going to take the easy way right, out yeah. in fact it's the harder way it can take longer but what is the alternative Yes, it's people sitting on the sideline, or or it, worse. And it also means that for that kind of decision making to work, you have to belong to the same matrix. You have to know each you're part other. Of the, you're part of the system. Not, right. You're not outside of it. You have to have not sitting some, on top. You just think or, or you're, you're in it, right? You need relationships. You need trust. You need you need some kind of background that gets you to that chair around that table. So trust is no longer just a nice thing to have. It's necessary yes. to bring the decisions forward. And Haverford really struggled uh, as you know they went from being all male, all white males, all white Quaker males no, white Quaker at, at, male. at some point, right? That's a demographic. Right. And then they slowly become generally all waspy males over the 50s and 60s. And then, I think it's in the 70s, they started accepting women, but not admitting them officially. And then in the 80s, they become co-ed. Mm. And then, of course, in the 70s, they also become diverse. And I think in the 60s, they start, they start accepting Jewish students. So, and then, so, they were, so in the 90s, when I was there, it was a really a struggle for the school to figure out what does it mean to be Quaker 
to have a Quaker identity, to have Quaker ideals, if the majority of your students are coming in have no idea, right? And they don't. And if you're coming from if you're coming from a perspective of protest and being against the man, how do you then transform those kind of feelings into let's make a decision together? When people are invested in being in the protest movement, right? It's it's it, and so you want the really decision struggled. to be in, engaged, not one where you're just trying to impose. Right. In fact, as a university administration, you can't actually tell all the incoming students, diverse student body, think this way. Right. So even if it means, even if it's, we want you to all respect each other, right? Yes. You can't yes. you can't tell people that. You can't right? order so, respect. So Hereford, I don't know where they are now, but I know in the '90s, <clears throat> it was it was a struggle. Uh, I was part of that struggle. You know, I was part of the first. So Haverford has an honor code, mm. being Quaker. So most of our exams were unproctored. Un, right, almost all of our exams were open book. We're not open book. You just trusted not to open your book. Okay. Right. Um, and in during my year was the first time that the honor council, which is a student body that adjudicated that uh, adjudicates honor code breaches. Um, it was the first time that they decided that, okay, sometimes it's okay not to have consensus. Uh. Out of the 12 people, you can have two people be neutral and the decision will still move forward. Uh, not, not full consensus. Not full consensus. But it's someone... The, the two couldn't be against consensus. Mm-hmm. They, they could, they could, they could, they could, they they could, could opt. They would, it was calling. It was called standing out of consensus. I, I mean, you weren't, you weren't, you weren't standing against the consensus, but you're not standing with the consensus. Um, so, we made. So I think there was, you know, that's Haverford slowly changing, and it was a great experience for me to live through, to watch an institution that's very proud of its traditions, figure out how to move with the times and the changes and diversity. So it sounds like Haverford would also, you yourself then, had to think a lot about what decision making is. What is the process of that? It's very easy when you think a person makes a decision and then that is somehow cascaded throughout a a community or organization or society. But if you think if, if a decision really is a matter of having enough agreement so action can occur, then you have to think about what what is the process by which we, we can come to that consensus, that, that agreement. And having grown up in the military dictatorship, so my time in the Congo was under military dictatorship, I had a natural suspicion of... of power being con- concentrated yes. in one place. Even if it's for a good reason. Yes. Right? Uh, even if the person is has the right intentions. It's just, you know, so I think I was also primed that way to want to like the idea of consensus involving people because it's a check. It's a check on the more powerful among among us. Yes. Uh, now you can still, you know, if you're good at convincing people and you're charismatic and you can still have an outsized influence on a yes. decision. But it's still different. It's an influence. Than you making the decision it's on your influence. own. Right. Uh, so uh, no, I really like that. And um, I met all kinds of exciting people. Um, when I was at Hereford and all kinds of interesting people and lots of coincidences. Like all of us have these coincidences in our lives, right? So I love books. So books are my first love. And uh, so because I was on a full scholarship, I was guaranteed a job by the college. Okay. Because they didn't give me money for, you know, clothes. And so I had to work for $2,400 
a year. Mm -hmm. um, and the first year, there wasn't space for me in the bindery. The bindery is the department of the library that fixes books. That's um, where I really wanted to go. Working with your hands. And so I was in the I was a receptionist for the library for the first mm -hmm. year. And then they had a spot, and I went to the bindery. And I, I walk into the bindery on my first day on the job, and there's this enormous black man who's... American black man. American black man who's... Uh, he's a permanent employee of the bindery. Um, he's worked in the bindery for a long time. He's worked in the bindery time. for a long time, and he loves talking to students because he's a pastor. Okay. <laughs> Turns out he's a pastor. So when the student and, comes and, to him, he has and, a built-in Yeah, yeah. Like he, was, uh, he loves talking to students. was very excited to have uh, a student of color mm -hmm. in the bindery. Um, and he was the pastor of a small Baptist church that was right outside the, co the college, but they couldn't afford to pay him enough to be full-time, so he worked in the bindery. So he's working in the bindery in the library of the, of the Quaker uh, yes, uh, University. Yes, but he's this firebrand, black, yes. nationalist, Baptist preacher, yes, yes, right? Yes. And he has young Kiame there. Yes, and so I walk in on our first day. You have no choice but to listen to him, even if he didn't, if he didn't, want, he didn't to, want to. Right? And so I get to know him. After a few days, he says... You're from the Congo, right? And I say, well, yeah, at the time it was Zaire. So I was like, yeah, I'm from Zaire. Yes. And he said, I knew a guy from Zaire once. He came to teach us about African culture um, in the late 60s while he was a grad student Oh, my here. goodness. Yes. Uh, do you happen to know Jackson Mahania? And I think he's joking, right? Because, because maybe, my, maybe he had noticed your last name. And my not. middle name is Jackson. Right. Oh, your middle name is Jackson. And my well. father's middle name is also Jackson, right? Oh, okay. And so I thought he's joking. So I just answer, yeah, whatever. Uh, <laughs> that's my father. And so he thinks I'm joking. And it takes us takes us about a day or two to figure out that. It's actually true. It's actually true. Mm -hmm. And so he adopts me as his no doubt, no long doubt. lost son. Right? Oh, what a so, wonderful story. so I'm going to church every Sunday um, because of Jim. And years later, he ends up officiating at my wedding. So, oh goodness! Yeah, so, so these things happen in our lives, and yeah, we're different and I, because of them. Yes, and uh, and he was a great support for me. And yeah, I remember I met yeah. when I was a junior. I met with the medical school advisor, and she said, "Yeah, you know, I, I just don't think you're gonna get into medical school. You know, you should take some time off, do something else." But yeah, I mean, medical school is not for you. Not for you. And I, I'm devastated. Right. This is my father's uh, plan for me since I was born. Yeah, so I go talk to Jim. And I'm like, Pastor Pollard, I'm not going to go to medical school. You know, I'm, I'm just an A-minus student. Apparently that's just not, it's not, good, not enough. good enough. Mm -hmm. And he's like, Yame, Haverford is so white that eating Wonder Bread is cannibalism. Okay, okay. <laughs> so don't worry about don't it. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to medical school. And it turns out that through some connection, he knew the dean of admissions for Temple University. For Temple University. Sure. And so he says, just talk to him, send him your dossier, and see what he says. Yes, and the guy looks at my stuff, and we talk for about 10 minutes, and he says, don't worry. You're, you'll get into a number of Even with a major of what was uh, politi political, political economy, economy says, yes, don't, don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> Schools will be falling all over themselves, too. And years later, I asked the advisor, why did you say that? Mm. And it turns out that um, she had never gotten a, person, a, a student of color into Harvard Med School yet. And she thought that if I did a year of research. She wanted you to do research first, yes. make your make your, yourself I, stronger. She thought that my resume would be 
astounding. So she actually had high hopes for you. She had high hopes. She wanted to get you into Harvard, but you needed some uh, more experience first. And I think if she had said that to me, at least that interesting is it. At least that's my, you know, understanding of the whole conversations, right? Uh, But, uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard for me to be even bitter about that because Haverford paid for me. I went to Haverford for free. And then I got into medical school, and then I, the federal government gave me the National Service Corps scholarship, so I went to medical school for free. Um, you know, and so... And so then you I, could have been bitter that you had to leave uh, Switzerland six months be, you know, be, before you wanted to, or you could see that you had had a wonderful six years, uh, similar when with, as you're leaving Haverford. Yes, and I loved Haverford, and I, I've, I've sort of slowly become more and more involved with them. And so I do more and more stuff with Haverford. And my goal is, over my lifetime, to reimburse them all the money that they um, they gave me in scholarships. Well, so I'm still working on it. That's an admirable thing. There are different yeah. ways to reimburse. Yeah. So there's there's financially and there are other ways other as well. Ways. Yeah. So I started working with their um, um, pre-med society. and Because I work... I, what, I, what about I, the young political economists, you know? Don't leave yeah, them out yeah, don't leave them out. Yeah, they don't need my help. <laughs> they don't They're going to be fine, whatever they, they do. They'll, they'll be fine. And I don't really have any advice for them, right? Whereas for, for physicians, I have plenty of ideas. A lot of specific things yeah, that you should do and, and don't do. And, so they, and from there, uh, such a diverse you know, life. And uh, now you are the CEO of a community health center in a very diverse community. Uh, somewhat of a depressed community, I could say, in, 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 the, in, in the Boston area. And all these things are coming together to, to, to inform how you are you know, encountering and accepting and embracing the role that you have. Uh, tell, us, tell us a little bit about taking on this, this role, what it's been like, uh, how your, 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 your cumulative experiences have uh, uh, helped and or hindered uh, your ability to, to, to face the challenges. Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. So number one, I've only been in the position for six months. So six months ago, you took on this uh, role, the CEO, uh, CEO right. of the Lind Community Health Center. Now, to be fair, I was two years before as a chief medical officer, so there was some, you know, there was some mentoring that had been going on for two years with my prior boss. So you knew the right. organization, so and you'd been right. able to work with the previous CEO. And in fact, that's one of the things that be of interest to, to WLEI's uh, listeners, which is one of, the, um, one of the failure modes that's out there in the world of transforming organizations, you know, using lean thinking, is that uh, transitions from CEO to CEO uh, don't often go well. And this is a case where you worked uh, closely with your predecessor uh, to, to align with, you know, that, that consensus thinking again with what the direction is, uh, to try to make things as seamless as possible on behalf of the people in the organization and the community. Yeah, yeah, but I think it was also that, so, so Laurie, Laurie Berry, Laurie Berry. Was, the prior, he was, was the prior CEO for 21 years of the Lynn Community Health Center. 21 years is a long time to be the CEO. Long of the time, yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, So she knew the center, everyone in the community knew, knew, knew her, her well, her. everybody lived in fear of her. She was a very strong, opinionated, dynamic, uh, uh, dynamic uh, woman. Um, but one thing that she did well with the whole introduction, she's the one who introduced the idea of lean to the community. 
through yes. that to the community health center. Yes, Lori, as she was looking to how to take the organization further, uh, found and embraced lean thinking, brought that in the organization. But she um, made um, very sure that it wasn't her. It wasn't about her. It wasn't her, about her. Right? It was, lean was always this, hey, there's this great thing out there. We're trying to get better. We like, have a lot of why, problems. Why, Here's a way to do let's it. Let's join this. Right? So, and I think that helped in the sense that none of the senior managers um, thought, oh, this is Lori's thing. Let's get rid of it because... So she was a dynamic, charismatic leader, but she didn't make it about herself. No, not in terms of the lean. She did not make mm-hmm. it about herself, mm-hmm. and so that made it. There's not that much ego in it, right? Yes. Like, if you rejected lean, it wasn't really rejecting Laurie. It was just rejecting lean. Like there, there was no. So embracing it wasn't embracing <laughs> Laurie. Right, rejecting it, it wasn't rejecting yes. Laurie. So it, that it was. was and I don't know if she did that on purpose or if that just the way it worked out. Um, I would imagine, given who, given who Laurie is, she did that on purpose. Um, it was a conscious, de- yeah. deliberate effort on her part. And also, she, about you know, she she was a big supporter of my candidacy uh, to be CEO, and she had seen my personal transformation and my personal acceptance of of the lean way of thinking. So she tell, knew. Tell us about your personal acceptance. Why, what did you when you because it wasn't you who brought it into right. Lynn Community Health. It, it was Lori, your predecessor. Yes. So when you first saw it and touched it and felt it, what, what, what did you think? Yeah, so this, this was the topic of my, 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 uh, my recent talk in Nashville at uh, the LEI Summit. It was really the idea that um, improvement was possible no matter how small or how big your system, right? That there was this there are these principles that you could study and that you could refer to. There was a whole discipline, right? There, there, there were, it was like a martial art, right? There, there were teachers, there were gurus, there were, there was like this whole world available to you to improve your conditions at your institution um, and that you didn't have to do it, you didn't have to reinvent it. Like it was like it was like going to university for improvement, right? It was so we need to improve. The need is there, there and here are some principles and practices that we can avail ourselves. And they're there, of. right? And people have thought about this. People have run big places. People have run small places, but people have thought about these things. So you don't have to because I had gone through ten years already, more than that, fifteen years of being in health centers. So I knew that just having your heart in the right place is not enough. So I, I was already. At every health system anywhere, anywhere, everyone yeah. wants to do well. Their heart is in the right place, and that is not. It's not. It's, that's not enough. And I think the first time that it really hit me was Disney World. Disney World. I went to Disney World, yes. and I could not believe how well organized Disney World was. Disney World is amazing. So we get to our hotel in Disney World, and I see a young woman who's just standing in the middle of the lobby. And she either has an iPad or some electronic thing, and she's like looking up every so often and tapping, looking up and tapping. And so I'm in line, right? So I go ask her, what are you doing? And she said, well, Disney World figures that the best way to predict next year's whatever date we were Mm -hmm. is to look at this year's that date. 
And so the second Tuesday in June tends to look like the second, second Tuesday, Tuesday in June. June. And so I'm just counting how many people, how long they're waiting for receptionists so that we know for next year if uh, we need more people, less people, you know, how can we maximize it so people don't wait in line? And Disney World is a bit of a community. Right. There are hotels and people go register. That happens yeah, in the health system, the time, in the right? community. And I remember thinking, wow, if Disney World is doing this, yes. like, and Disney World is nothing important, right? Disney World is entertainment. If Disney this World is good is, enough for visitors to Disney World, it's probably good <laughs> like, enough for our community how members. Could we not, how could we not do it for in medicine? So I remember thinking about that for many, many years. Um, it reminds me, you, you refer to consensus as sometimes, and lean thinking sometimes is being criticized, or it, it takes too much it time. It takes too long, yeah. And similarly, it takes too much effort. In this case, Disney World, Disney World is making the effort to do this just for yeah. people showing up at the hotel, so surely our patients are worth the same effort. And, and there were a lot of things about Disney World that just amazed me. And I think in retrospect, I realized that this is what can happen when you think about our whole value stream, right? The fact that you never see trash being picked up in Disney World, Yes, right? They've organized a system where somehow the trash magically disappears and you never see the trash trucks. Right. And apparently right. there's this whole complicated tunnel system. Underneath, yes, and, right? underground, yes. But I remember thinking, why is it that when we have these really sick people coming out of the ICU or coming out, you, you could be in a hospital and you could be in an elevator minding your own business and suddenly there'll be this desperately sick mortally wounded person who's being wheeled into the elevator with you. You're just a visitor, right? Yes. You're just going to visit your cousin who's had their tonsils taken out or something, right? Yes, and then yes. you're suddenly faced with somebody who's being bagged, who's not conscious, who has blood everywhere. And we're thinking, that is just so not customer friendly. We could easily build our hospitals so that we have parallel hallways. Yes. And parallel elevators. It's a matter so of being deliberate in terms of designing yeah, you just have and organizing. To, you things. have to decide what do you want, right? So I remember thinking, and I didn't, I didn't go any further with that thinking. I just remember thinking, ah, oh, it'd be really great if we could be like Disney World. But then Disney World does have a consulting arm, but it's really, really expensive. So I looked at it once. I was like, okay, that's not for us. And then I forgot about it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And so then, mm-hmm. so, but. Well, they've thought a lot about the customer, the customer yes. experience, what, what customer. is value, some value, you know, a value stream, if you, if, if you will. Yeah, so I think that the, the CEO to CEO transition um, was just that, I don't know what it would be, I don't know what it would be like, let's say I retire in three years. Yes. Right, or four years, I decide I don't want to be CEO anymore. One of my goals is to do the same thing that Laurie did. One of my goals is to push lean thinking as hard as I can institution, but yet somehow not it, not it be Kiame's, right? I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I put the authority of the CEO behind it, right? Because you can have a vision, you can really push things when you're a CEO, and yet have people discover parts of it on their own and have their own personal transformations so that it's not Kiame's thing. So that when the time comes for me to leave, whenever that is, the next person, if they didn't know anything about Lean, would come and they'd be faced with all these managers and frontline employees and senior managers who are like, this is how we do things. This is how we love doing things. These are the successes we've achieved. These are our failures, but this is how we love doing things. 
we think we think we need a leader who's going to help us grow more on this path. So right? this is an opportunity to, yeah. to have everyone love these things. Yeah. If the organization can love working this way, yes. then you have it. It's pretty deeply embedded yeah. in the culture. Right. Then when somebody comes in and says, <laughs> adopt some lean deviant behavior, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. everybody will be like, well, why do you want to do it that way? You know, like why? Why would why would we do that? Why would we do why would we do that? Explain explain to us why we would do that. Yes. So that's one of my one of my big ambitions, and so part of the way I frame it is that I've started preparing my succession already, even though I'm a complete newbie CEO. Only six months in, but you're, want, you're, you're yes. already working on succession. Right? Yes. That's what they always say, is your first job of a CEO is succession. Work on succession. It's not about choosing a particular individual in this case. It's just about getting the path ready, right? Getting the path ready uh, and, and, and embedding it in an institution so it's not just a personality cult or something that's tied to me. Uh, and yeah, so I think it will be a completely different transition for me than it was for Lori. I think in some ways it's more tentative when you're the beginning, but it's also easier because people are still really enthused about it. Well, it's, right? a, it's a big change. It's easy to say we were doing this, now we're going to do this, this. And it's easy to point to you know different Some things things. and highlight. Uh, now the challenge, yeah, the challenge is a little bit different. She had been there 20 years. In yes. your case, uh, let's say it is three, four, or five years from now. Uh, there's pl- plenty of time to get it more and more embedded. So how to have that, 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 that dynamic between not just you know, top down and pushing and saying this is about me and, and my vision, it's the organization's vision. So it kind of goes back to your long-term belief in, in the value of consensus. And then you, you, can, you can think of the process by which that consensus can be built. So that draws upon your experience uh, certainly at Haverford, if not, uh, if not even before that. Yes, and it, it, it also really involves jumping to the front line, right? Making sure that your front line really gets into lean, right? Because they're the ones who are going to, they're, they're the ones who, who are going to work the way the middle class worked in Western democracies over the 20th century, right? If you get your front line to really embrace this idea, then you know they're, they're problem solvers, they're coming up with ideas, they're engaged. So what manager would want to change that, right? Like once once that's going. So you really have to get get them going in it. But it's a challenge, it's a, it's a challenge, you know. Um, how do you, one of the challenges I'm facing now is how do I frame the empowerment and the engagement of frontline employees without the implication somehow that managers have less authority? You know, so that I realize. So, so you want to have that frontline engagement and the frontline managers and supervisors, and, you know, n- nurses and, and, and uh, young young physicians and everyone. Uh, you want them fully owning and being empowered. Uh, at the same time, you want the direction to be clear. Yes. So it's of, it's, it goes back to balance again, doesn't it? So yes. You can balance the various things at the same time. And it also means that you have to start choosing your managers and hiring managers for specific traits, right? specific behaviors, uh, not just a strong leader who can take charge, but also someone who has that balance, right? Who, who, is a, who's a, who, who realizes the whole yin and yang thing. Um, and then someone 
and this is and this is important for me too, someone who realizes that having your reports be smarter than you is actually an advantage. Right? Most of us are threatened by the idea of having direct reports who are smarter than us. And I'm in a position now where I have direct reports who are way smarter than I am. And and that's an advantage. It's actually an advantage. They make you look good. Right? They right, you just have to like put a check on your ego and realize, wow, they can solve problems for me. So yeah. I guess especially in healthcare or American healthcare at least, there's this been this uh, belief we have to rely on the the, the hero leader. Right. And uh, I think a lot of physicians have embraced that and says, yes, I'll I'll, I'll uh, be the smartest. I'll, sign up for that. I'll be the smartest guy in the room, <laughs> and uh, just uh, yeah, just follow me. I know the best thing to do. Um, so how to build um, confidence in, in the leadership and the fact that we're moving in in, in the right direction. At the same time, having people not just to buy into some hero uh, worship is is the kind of balance, the yin and yang that that, yeah. that, that, you're, that you're going after. Yeah, my my favorite metaphor for that is world class tennis players. You know, world class tennis players have coaches. Have coaches. The coaches are not better than them, right? That's that's not a point, right? Andre Agassi's coach wasn't better than him. You know, it's just. A coach can see things, like right? a leader can see things that you may not see if you're open to it. So in the healthcare yeah. world, Atul Gawande has had, you know, has had some things to say mm-hmm. about how, uh, whether it's tennis or golf or, or we have coaches, but physicians usually don't. So what have you seen about the role of a coach? And this transformation that's been taking place at Land Community uh, Health Center. You mean as what's it meant to you, and what has it meant to the organization? You mean as a separate role for being a leader, right? Uh, maybe separate could be combined. So I think that number one, as a leader, you, part of a big part of your job is coaching and mentoring, right? That's it's a manager leader as coach. Right? Yes. And so you know, I still constantly am trying to carve out time for me to read more on Lean to read, you know to just keep evolving on my own so I can keep you can coaching be, you can and be a coach. right? Yes. But I think that... A coach doesn't have to be a better tennis player, but, but he has to be knowledgeable yes. uh, and, and know enough to be able to provide that coaching adv- advice. And know enough to be trusted. Know enough to be trusted, yes. You, you know, to, like Djokovic, who's a world-class tennis player, yes. has gone through this period where he no longer trusts anybody to be able to coach him. Yes. Right, and he's really dropped... <laughs> his game is well, really. We see that happen with world his, class game is, his game. His game really, was yes. really worse. It was Roger Federer, who has been number one for a long time and gone out and is now getting older, really still has coaches. Yes. But um, I think that coaches are great. Um, now, uh, we had the luck of having a in house coach uh, in, in Kim Ang. Yes. Um, so I don't know what it would be like if you only had an outside consultant coach yes um, so I, th- I think that and the image that I use when I'm talking to different employees is we're at the bottom of this mountain it's winter winter is coming and it takes we know it takes a long time to get up that mountain um, and, and, and there's some knowledge available and, and that can help us get up that and, mountain this goes back to your point right earlier. you can either buy your own map and plot it you can call on your prior experience to know all the equipment that you'd be like, okay, I've climbed other mountains before. I know what equipment I need. But how much easier it is if someone shows up and says, hey, my name is John Shook. Uh, I'm the guy. I've been up this mountain, up and down this mountain a few times. Uh, do you want 
to hear what I have to say about equipment and preparation and planning and where we should spend the first night and you know and the, so that's what we had with that's what we had with Kim Ang essentially we have somebody who's says hey I know a little bit about this mountain and someone in the organization and and not only experience that, and a lot of knowledge and the nice thing about having an in-house coach is that she's actually walking with you yes right she's walking with you up the path you're not yes. like radioing a consultant to say hey um you know, there's been an avalanche on this path. Can, can you a helicopter in and give, a, you know, give right. some advice here? Which I think also has its... Is it, like, it can have its place. Like, like I love... An outside set of eyes. I love having Alice Lee as an outside coach, right? So there are times where I just feel that I just have a question that I yes. that lends itself to having an outside fresh pair of eyes looking at it. And so having that... So I think we're... Perhaps. So you have both. You have, have the strong internal and coach, we have architect, the and the external, external advice as well. Yes. Set of and so that well. may be unusual for a company, particular company of our size. Um, but it's been, I'd say that whatever movement we've made would not have been possible without an internal coach. Yes. Because like, the internal coach is really always, like in the group, she's always reminding us, no, 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 that's not, you're gonna fall down the crevasse if you, if you if you go that way, right? Or I don't. There might be a better way of doing it. Do you want to think about it? Do you want to? And then she also gives me one-on-one feedback, right? She'll say, "Oh, you totally missed that one." Um, and that's so for my personal development, but also for our corporate development. Having that internal coach has been just invaluable invaluable yeah and uh and there's trust there it sounds like and of, of, uh, in both in terms of the trust required after uh, uh, an event as you just mentioned that that she can say hey Kiyomi, you met you missed that one right so there's that level of personal trust and there's also the trust that uh knowing that she has experience uh and when she says no let's try this path instead of that one uh that there's there's good reason to, <laughs> to right. think that this is that, 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 that this is true Yes, and also the realization that she's on her own journey. Right? Exactly. So right. she's never actually climbed this mountain. Right. She's climbed one of this similar, similar but it's actually a different mountain. But she's on her own journey. So she's uh, learning right along. She's learned, right, and that to 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 appreciate that, and not to put her in this guru position, right, yes. where she answers everything, and right to realize that she has a role, but there's no cheating. Right, you can't learn how to give a better kick just by talking to your teacher. At some point, you're just gonna have to kick that bag yeah, yeah, a thousand yeah, times, yeah, right? Yeah. Like you just, you just have to do. There's no cheating. You have to do your own work. And so sometimes, you know, Kim just says, you know, I don't know. You just have to go think about you it. Just have to try. Yeah, you you know, just she, she can look at the two right. pathways going up and think that one looks like you right. know, you know, more promising. But I don't really know. Right. So to 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 not be afraid to say I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what can we do to try to learn enough so that we can make the, make better decisions? Is an important part of it as well. And the other thing that she's been very useful for me is that I have a tendency to really deny whatever achievement I have. And so then it makes it harder to coach, right? If you think you know nothing and you don't deserve any respect, then it makes it hard for you to be like, okay, I'm going to coach my medical director. So I'm going to coach, right? So that also it's, it's great having having Kim as a, as a person who can sort of hold up the mirror and say, look, this is what we talked about a year ago. This is what we're talking about now. 
you do have something to contribute. You are capable of mentoring and coaching. And so please don't use the excuse that you've only been at it for two years to not be engaged. It's another yin and yang balance thing, isn't it? Of humility and confidence and how yes. there, there, there's, there's a dynamic there. Yes. The, the overconfidence can be a trap. But the uh, lack of confidence can also... Just be, being humble so that people can't uh, trust you is, is, right. is another kind of a drawback. Yes. Um, and I was reading that the most, the most effective leaders actually have uh, average, average amount of narcissism <laughs> <laughs> in them. And that people who completely are lacking in narcissism generally don't end up being... Good leaders. It's balance again. Yeah, you need to you need to balance you need to balance all that. Um, we, we see some uh, leaders in public life nowadays, maybe on the extreme end of the narcissistic right. scale. Right. Well, I think that one. You know, like I mentioned, that books was always one of my my big things, and uh, the Lord, the Lord of the Rings uh-huh. by Tolkien uh, was a major major impact for me as a teenager, and it's all about power. It's all about how you as a leader relate to power and the fact that power always changes you so the only question is where are you starting from and where are you willing to go with that power and it's always right and so he just he has the, all these examples and all these characters who react and the ring is a metaphor for the power yes, yes and you have all these people that react completely differently to the ring um and the worst is when the ring just takes you over and you have no more self-agency. And that's, right? Uh, and the best are not people who run, and he has, he has leaders who are just like, I can't handle the ring, right? And so those are not the best leaders either. The best leaders are those who are able to interact in some way with the ring, who are able to be in the vicinity of the ring or sometimes even use the ring but not, Right, you see, it, see it for what it is. Yes, you don't deny all, it, and, 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 and always that, have that, fair. and always have that sort of push and pull, that ambivalence, that balance between, okay, I have the confidence to use the power, but I'm humble enough to know that I can't use it for a long time because it'll change me. It'll change yeah, you, and, and also and, the organization and, who and, then looks at you in a, in a different way, and, and all of a sudden now you're the answer man again. Yes, and they're going to come to you to ask for what to do in every situation. And as you mentioned, you wanted them to be empowered. You want them to be embracing this and making their own decisions. Yeah. And it, and it's, it is tough because I can see, you know, that, you know, that I think Eric uh, calls it the... the Eric Burns. Eric Burns, you know, the, the CEO of, Lee, of, of uh, LEI, calls it that shining, that shining armor leader. You know, people... There's, this, there's all this pressure... For you to be the decisive, knowledgeable, reassuring leader, all the time. Probably most organizations, time. and certainly in healthcare. And people want you to be that way. And you when know, you people, when you acknowledge, okay, I'll try to be that way, then people are very comfortable. Yes. And you can it can be a drug for the individual, that leader, and for everyone else as well. And the most common comment that I. That I got when I was CMO and I was trying to forge consensus and trying to is you're looking weak, you know what I mean? You're looking weak. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's this idea that Although it, actually you were taking the harder road. Right. It's actually it, easier just okay, I'll put my foot down and I'm gonna say this is the way we're right. gonna go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna embarrass happy. my colleagues in public. I'm gonna say no, I don't believe that in front of everybody, you know. 
Uh, but uh, yeah, so you always have to also pay attention to how you're being viewed. Are you making sure that making sure that you're being seen as a leader, and particularly, uh, and to add things. There's one my first meeting with the with the doctors and the nurse practitioners and PAs when I was a CEO. Different. So this is after you became I'm CEO. I'm CEO and I have a first now meeting. Now you're going to have the first meeting. Very difficult meeting. Like there are a number of things are not going well and I had to own up to the fact that, yeah, these things are not going well and they've not gone well for a while and we need to fix them and I'm, I'm sorry, you know, no magic wand and we're just going to have to work through it. And uh, two of my black uh, clinicians came to me separately different times and they said you know Kiame, as a black leader you just can't afford to be that open you know everybody's a little bit racist and uh, you just came out as really weak you know, so and they wanted you to be strong yes, and appear decisive right. and, and, from, and, and, it was, and it was from a sort of racial dynamic perspective yes. right they, especially yes like you know, so there's all there's that part, especially as a as a, as a black leader, right. especially Lori as a, as a, as a woman. You have yes. you have to go to go over what it reminds me a little bit. This whole power discussion and consensus. Uh, you know, there's the famous story in Lean World about uh, the, the first senior manager at Numi, the, the Toyota joint venture in California. His name is Gary Convis, and his his mentoring from his uh, Japanese leader mentor uh, was to lead as if you have no power. And so uh, he had power, uh, but with the with the uh, the coaching to try to lead as if you don't, uh, that in itself being a, a challenge, uh, was one that he embraced. And it sounds like that's the same thing you're doing as you're you're you're, you're not giving up on on uh, consensus leadership. You're right. going to bring people. It takes more time. It's more difficult. Right. But you're not going to take the easy way out, which is to simply uh, yell, uh, talk the loudest, wear the shining armor, as Eric puts it. And uh, you know, put your fist on the table. You're, you're going to bring people together to think together about the issues, the challenges, and what is a deliberate pathway we can choose to go forward. And then, how do we get there? How do we climb this mountain together? Yeah, and I think one thing that I learned from you during a brief conversation in Asheville, although you probably it's probably not what you intended to for me to take out of the conversation, Uh-oh. was that lean can also be a spectrum. Right, you said there's always a better way. Right, there's, there's always a better way of doing something, but it also means that sometimes there's four or five different ways that are not quite as good as the sixth way. But sometimes that's what you got, and that's you know, you go with. And I think so. Part of it is that even though it's my goal to be that kind of leader, I recognize that time, there are times when you know. My judgment will be clouded. Will be pressed for time. Uh, something will happen, and then I won't quite get there, right? And I think I'm okay. Like if I've, if I've done everything I possibly can to move in as much of a lean direction as, as possible, I just hit my limitations for that particular moment. I think I just you know, learn from it and try to make sure that the next time it's better that I'm not caught in the same traps and, and, and then you're working both uh, personal transformation and organizational transformation transformation at, at the same time and both of them probably never having perfection yeah, at any right. given moment but mo- but moving toward that yes the moving towards is the I, I like that image right that 
We're always going to make mistakes. We're always going to make mistakes. And we're all looking back and it will be like, oh. So well, is Kami the, the every day the perfect CEO at, at Lynn, Lynn uh, Community Health Center? Uh, you know, not yet. No. But he's getting there every 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 day. It'd be a pretty good pretty good uh, uh, place to be. I think. I, I, that's what I'm. I'm really, really hoping. I'm really, really hoping for is that. Um, I want to be known. My really ambition is that. I wanted that when you're in high school in Lynn or you are now a single parent and you got your GED and things are looking rough and you're in Lynn. I want it to be one of your first thoughts is, you know what, I should go work at the Lynn Community Health Center because I know that I'm gonna learn a lot. They're gonna take care of me, they're gonna push me. And everybody there seems after three or four years to get a degree or get a promotion or move on and that's what I want. You know that that and it, and I want so I want to be that. I'd love for Lincoln Yale Center to be the kind of place that's that has that space in the young adult imagination and Lynn. What better aspiration for an organization than for the surrounding community to see as their number one aspiration would be to work there right. for young people to work there? Yes, I really like to be a, a gateway. Lynn is known as a gateway city because of all immigration. Yes. But I'd really like to be a gateway institution for the young people in our community where they, that, where they can come and start imagining a career and they can start, and start imagining what path they're going to take forward. Like a place where we can pay them enough, give them enough benefits, give them good coaching, give them enough mentoring that they can start imagining so they start working there with aspirations and with passion for for healthcare, and they leave with even when they leave with even more uh, knowledge and, and and higher aspirations. Yes, and it's okay if they leave. Like, and that's part of our that, sure. that's, that that should be part of our modus operandi. Sure, sure. That they they're growing and they're leaving, and some will stay, but you know we can't keep everybody. So our job is to just prepare them and launch them. And where they go, they'll do good things there. And, and then more sometimes they'll come back, come. you know, and uh, yes, but will they, will they go? And then they'll carry our name further. And then that means that other institutions will be like, oh, yeah, we should take that person. They worked at Lynn. I suspect there'll be some listeners to this uh, podcast who will think that they would like to go work at Lynn Community Health Center. <laughs> yes, they can, they, can contact, they can contact me. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, Kami, for spending time with us today. Uh, thanks. I'm, I'm humbled uh, to be uh, part of the podcast, and I, uh, I'm excited uh, to be here. Thanks for sharing your story. If you have a show idea, feedback, or a question you'd like to ask someone in the Lean community, send that into pod, P-O-D, at lean.org. Once again, that's pod at lean.org. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.